Uh, all right. Jury duty. Have you, uh, have you ever been called to jury duty? How many of you have? Really? That is, a, that is a really good number. How many of you have actually done it? Like you've been on the jury? Whoa, that is, that is awesome. Um, I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised. I guess it just uh, it happens, but someone has to do it. Uh, I, was, I was called for jury duty, and if you've heard this story, I've, I've shared this before here, but it, it always comes to mind when I, when I think about the, the passages that we're going to look at today. Uh, but I was uh, in Yorkton, and I was, got the note in the mail, and I, you know, and it looked very official, right, from the, the city or the police department. I don't know, I forget where it was, the Justice Department of Yorkton. I don't know. I opened it up, and there it was. It said, uh, you know, you're, you're called for jury duty. This is the time you need to present yourself. You need to be there. And didn't know anything about it, what it, what it was all about. So I, I uh, pulled in there, and I got, gathered with a bunch of people, and then they told us, uh, relatively early in the process, they said, this is actually a murder trial, which for Yorkton, I mean, that was a, that was a pretty big deal. And they said, this, you could expect that this trial could be long. And so just be thinking of that in terms of, you know, your plans and your future for the next couple months. I was like, whoa, how am I going to fit this into my life, right? And so they said, well, if you have any reason for, you know, excuse, you should approach the, the bench, approach the judge, and tell them. And, and so I was like, I don't know if my excuse is very good, but I went up there and I said, well, I'm, I'm a new dad. And, uh, oh, oh, yeah, and I'm, I'm taking a course, actually, a seminary course, modular course in the next couple weeks, and I've already paid my money for that. And he looked at me, he's like, well, see what happens. You may not get chosen, but, you know, that's, we're not going to excuse you for that. And I'm like, okay. So as we, we went through and they called the numbers, they called the numbers, and if you've been a part of this, you understand how this works, is there's a, there's a prosecutor and the defense, and they each get a certain number of strikes, right, of the jurors. So the jurors presented, potential juror, and they, and they look at you, and they look at, I don't know, what all the information that they have about you. And, and so what happens is they, they get so many strikes, and they have to come down to the, the jury, well, as it came down to it, my number finally got called, and I sat there, and they, they had brought in the accused, and he was sitting there in the room, and again, I knew that this was a murder trial, and I looked, as I looked at this guy, I thought, okay, this, this could be a potential murderer right in front of me, and so then the judge says, or the foreman, I don't know, whoever it was, he says, okay, juror, look at the accused, accused, look at the juror. And so yeah, your eyes have to meet, and you look at each other, and then the defense and the prosecutor have to decide, you know, whatever, if they're going to strike you. And so I remember looking at this man, accused of a pretty bad crime, and thinking, okay, how would Jesus look at this man? And because I was trying not to put any, you know, judgment or anything, I just thought, I don't know, could be innocent, right? Could be all innocent. So I just looked at him, and I, I put on this, like, the eyes of Jesus, right, looking at him. And I was just kind of thinking about this and praying for this guy as I was sitting there. And then, you know, then the prosecutor says, we moved to strike this juror. <laughs> and I was dismissed. I was uh, told I, I could go. They didn't want me. And I had this mixed feeling, actually, because I thought, well, this would be actually kind of cool, kind of exciting to be a part of this. And the other part of me was relieved, but, but I also felt, well, why did they reject me? 
You know, why am I being rejected? Uh, but maybe they saw I was, a pro- I was a pastor and they thought maybe I would be, you know, either lenient on the guy or, or what. But anyways, they, they moved to strike. Uh, strike me as a, as a juror. So it was over. I don't have a lot of experience other than that, being in front of a judge or, of a, or lawyers, anything like that. I, I, I do try as much as I can to pay my speeding tickets on time and, uh, and not even go in and fight them. And yes, I have had a few. Photo radar, right? <laughs> Who likes that stuff? But um, scenic, bad, slow down. <laughs> but I, I can say honestly, I don't know that much about the law, um, although I have watched a fair number of Law and Order episodes. And before that, I really enjoyed the show Matlock. Do any of you remember Matlock? A good, good, wholesome show, Ben Matlock, you know? And uh, where are the shows like that these days, right? But I, I, so that's all my extent of knowledge of, of the law. But I'd say this. If you or I were the defense attorney for Jesus, I would imagine that you could come up with a summary statement. You know how they do a summary statement. All, all of this has now come to the end. I think it would be fairly simple. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what you have seen and heard today is a travesty of justice. An innocent man, one who came to serve, one who healed people, one who revealed the love and the character of the Father is before you today, judged by his accusers on trumped-up charges with no evidence. And so I move that these charges be dismissed and Jesus released immediately. But we know the story. It was not to be. And while we will see how everything about this trial was truly a mockery of justice, we know that the plans and the purposes of God prevailed. Jesus predicted this, that he would indeed be betrayed, that he would be handed over to be crucified. He would go to the cross for you and for me for our sin. So this morning, we're going to begin this walk through the darkest hours of the story. We're in this series, it's called Once Upon a Savior, and it's a, it's a story, it's a narrative. It is the gospel accounts that reveal this, this passion narrative, this, the last week of, of Jesus, his trial, his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion, and we're going to get there to the good news of the resurrection. But in the midst of this, it is important that we know the story. And perhaps maybe, maybe this is new to you or you know a little bit about Easter. You know that there's a Good Friday and it's confusing maybe to you and it's confusing to some of us. You say, why do we call that a Good Friday? Because we do focus on the death and it was a brutal death of Jesus. And yet we who believe and come to realize why Jesus went to the cross we can say that it was good. It was good, what he did for us. 
But if you don't know some of this, and, and oftentimes we don't really unpack a lot of this narrative, we read it often on Good Friday, we read the story. We're going to go through a little bit of the details at first, just a bit of the clarifying some of the chronology of the order of the events, and, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how unjust this trial really was. We're going to look at the incriminating words that Jesus spoke and then, to conclude, we're going to look at the religious, well, what was really at the heart of, of their, their issues. What was the, we're going to talk about potholes. I know there's lots of potholes around. I thought it was a very uh, um, relevant kind of thing. Potholes of the religious that we need to avoid. Because we set ourselves in the story. We, in our sin, are in collusion with those who crucified Jesus. And so while we look at the religious leaders and we say, man, this was corrupt, this was wrong, this was a miscarriage of justice, we also have to see our part in it and also recognize the areas that we could potentially get drawn into, the same potholes that these religious leaders were trapped by. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 63, and we're going to read down to 23, verse 2. And this will get us started on this, this account. And as you go there, the context is this, is that Jesus had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about this was the place of, of crushing, crushing of the olives, but it was very symbolic of Jesus praying there what would be crushing on him, the weight of our sin. And then Judas led this band of temple guards and soldiers to seize Jesus right up to this point. And so now verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and they kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they, they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it, from our, heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. We'll read one other passage from John chapter 18. It said this, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who would advise the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
<clears throat> now, again, if you are, are not familiar with how the, the whole story of Jesus unfolds in this, in this narrative, we have the four Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different eyewitness accounts, different uh, testimonies of people, different, uh, you know, Luke was a, a researcher. He was trying to find out all the details, the interview process, how, how they came up with all these, the same story, but from different angles, and if you were to lay all those events kind of side by side or, or on top of each other, you would get a fuller picture. And so that would be a great thing for you to do even in this season coming to Easter uh, as far as reading these passages. So Luke chapter 22 and 23, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 18 all sort of show different sides and different angles of this same time and same events. But even still, self-admittedly, it is a bit confusing. And I, and I also, I always go back to things that sometimes people say, well, that, that doesn't seem to line up with this, and this guy's account doesn't seem to line up with that. And on one hand, you could say, well, there, there is some challenges, there is some timeline issues, but also, if it was so completely tight and so fitted together, it would say, man, they just came up with that in, you know, in one of the upper rooms, and they just sort of said, well, we're going to say this, and you're going to say this. If it was all a conspiracy, if it was all, it would, it would be a lot neater. <laughs> That's what my, sometimes I think how it goes. But there is different angles to it, and they saw it from different sides. And so this is a bit of a chronology of events, because Luke doesn't share all of this in the passage that we just read. So we go from the Last Supper, which is the Thursday night. Okay, they had that Last Supper, and Jesus washed their feet, and, and Judas left. And, uh, and rushed out, and then later on, Jesus goes into the garden to pray. And then there's the betrayal that happens right after that. Then where we just picked up and read, the guards um, who had arrested Jesus, they beat him, they bind him, and they take him to the house of, of Annas. Now, Annas, as it says, was the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. It's confusing because there was only supposed to be one high priest, but in fact, as you know, if you look into it, there was actually probably 12 that, that year. This was a corrupt system because these, these high priests of the Sanhedrin and how they would kind of put it together, they would pay money and, and to Rome and, and so they would actually coordinate this, this whole system of who was in power. And so Annas had been the high priest, but now it was his son-in-law, but he still was a person of power in the system. So they take him, first of all, to the house of Annas. Then Annas sends him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. This is all in the middle of the night. Then as we pick up from Luke, the Sanhedrin, the full council, they gather at daybreak. This is probably like 4 to 6 a.m., Again, this was something that was very much a conspiracy like to make this all happen because we were talking about during the Passover feast and, and they had to get things done in a hurry. Then we, we learned that it was on to the Praetorium. This is when they brought Jesus before Pilate, the governor of Rome, probably around 6 to 8 a.m. In that time, or shortly after, he was sent to, to Herod because he found out that Jesus was from Galilee. And he says, oh, that's Herod's territory. He's the Tetrarch of Galilee. And Herod would have been in Jerusalem for this, this whole feast uh, time of Passover. And so they sent him to Herod. And Herod, he says that he wanted a sign. He'd heard about Jesus. He wanted Jesus to do something spectacular, supernatural. And Jesus didn't really give him much, you know, didn't say anything. He says, okay, well then, so then he sent him back, back to Pilate. And then to the cross, 
at 9 a.m. <laughs> so from being arrested in the night to being on the cross was for sure less than 12 hours. It's true. What Peter says in Acts 2.23, he says, You, speaking to his audience, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death. All right, so how, how unjust was this, this trial? That was just a brief chronology. You can look more into that if you desire. There was bad things, bad things about how this all went down. This was a bad arrest. You don't arrest someone without any charges or without any witnesses. And this, was, this is all things that were part of the Jewish system of law that they completely overlooked. But they wanted to arrest Jesus. They saw their opportunity with Judas and they took advantage of it. So there was no formal charges. Uh, the witnesses only came later and we'll see they were bad ones at that. And then we see that the guards, they used Jesus for sport. They, they beat him and they mocked him. It was a bad location. You know, the trials were supposed to be in the court, not in someone's house. There were bad judges. This was the Sanhedrin, this, this ruling council. There wasn't any separation of church and state in this, this time. They were, they were the ones that managed the, the temple system and all the religious side of culture, but also they made the rulings, they made the judgments. So there was no separation of church and state. And the accusers... <laughs> they were the ones that, you know, were conspiring to, to take Jesus down. They actually were also the judges, which was completely inappropriate. They were judge, jury, and ultimately almost executioner, although they needed Rome for that. We'll get to that. There was bad timing. There was, this was happening at night. That was illegal. The trial should never happen at night. Their own law prevented them from having this happen during a preparation day of the Passover, and as well, once a verdict, you know, they were, they were supposed to sleep on it a day. That was kind of to give the judge, you know, time to sleep on it. There was supposed to be a one night after, um, which, but of course they couldn't do it because it was during the Passover. Again, they had to expedite it. There were bad witnesses. Mark 14, 55 says this, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet it says even their testimony did not agree. Bad witnesses. It was a bad verdict. Mark 14, verse 64, they, they heard this from Jesus, that he agreed, he said, I am who you say I am, that he was the Christ, he was the Son of God, the Son of Man, we'll get to that. But they, um, it says that they heard blasphemy, and ultimately that, that wasn't even, it wasn't blasphemy, blasphemy was to curse God. We even read that earlier, that the guards were blaspheming Jesus, they were cursing him, and Jesus was not cursing God but he was calling himself equal with God. But to them, that was blasphemy. So they all condemned him, it says in Mark 14, 64. They all condemned him as worthy of death. See, they had already established the outcome, and they had plotted to find a way to kill him. 
And the fact that it was, it was unanimous, that they all agreed, this also was a grievous uh, miscarriage of justice in their system because they said if the law was this, is if it is unanimous, like uh, someone had to have a defense. There had to be someone that would stand up for him, someone to defend him. And so to have it actually be unanimous, the, ideal, the idea was actually that they would, they would release them. They would acquit them because it meant that there had been a conspiracy. <laughs> and yet, that's what it says. It says that nobody disagreed. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Now, we know through Scripture that there was two members of this council, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who were actually a part of this. And apparently, they didn't get the invitation to this, uh, you know, this night gathering uh, because they... It says in, uh, in Luke 23, 50, that Joseph of Arimathea, he did not agree with this. So he, he wasn't, wasn't there. And so because it was unanimous, Jesus actually should have been released, but that wasn't going to happen because they were not willing to let go that way. There was bad, bad charges. No evidence and inconsistent witnesses. They could only proceed if Jesus incriminated himself and so, as we said, their, their charge was blasphemy, which he wasn't actually doing. Now, interesting thing is that if, if they had said he was guilty of blasphemy, within their system, they could have actually stoned him themselves. And they had tried already on a different occasion to stone Jesus. They say, though, that they had to bring him to Rome so that Rome could take care of it because they said, well, we don't have the power to actually execute someone, to, to put out capital punishment. When in fact, they actually, they did. And we see that later on with, with the stoning of Stephen, right? Saul was there giving approval for his death. So they could do it. They were going to stone the adulterous woman. And yet, they wanted, they wanted a scapegoat. They wanted to be free of this because they feared the people. And so if you notice, you look, when they actually bring him, Jesus, to Pilate, what do they do? They don't say, this man is guilty of blasphemy, because Rome wouldn't care. They wouldn't care about that. That's your issue. You deal with it. But they didn't want to. So what do they do? They change the charges. You see that they, they say he's calling himself a king. Treason. An ins insurrectionist, right? This has to be put down. That was the, the approach that they did. So even the original charges that they had, they changed. Now, we can say that, and we, we realize we can't go back. And we know that wasn't the plan and purpose of God. But to see the corruption, to see how this happened, that Jesus was tried so illegally, and then put on the cross so quickly. This is what happened to our Lord. So what was his testimony? This is what they, they heard from Jesus, who most of the time stayed silent. It says, Then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? 
I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so these are the pictures, these are the words that are used to describe and what Jesus affirmed, that he was the Christ. He was the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior. He was the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One. And he used the term, the, the term that Jesus loved to use about himself was the Son of Man, which comes from Daniel 7, 13 to 14. It says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. Jesus says, I'm he. And he says that he is seated at the right hand of the power of God. Seated. You don't sit down until the work is done. Jesus accomplished the work. He finished the work and sat down. So what does, this, what does this mean for, for you and me? Because we can, we can look at this historical account as we can look at, at injustices of the past, injustice in our, in our culture, wrongs that have been done, but this was our Lord, this was, this was Jesus Christ, our Savior. We can't, we can't change that, and we, we wouldn't want to in the way that it ultimately brought us salvation. But we can look at, at the religious leaders and say, where did they, where did they get wrong? Where did this all happen for them? And what was the issues for them? And so we look at the potholes of the religious. And again, uh, if, you've, if you've been driving around Lethbridge lately, you've probably hit a few potholes. And so these things are, are everywhere. And so I thought, you know what? You're driving around. Think of these things too. So here you go. Things we need to avoid. First of all is self-deception. Self-deception. These religious leaders, they had religious zeal. But this zeal was without love. And Jesus had pointed this out to them again and again and again. What his message was, was love for God, but also love for neighbor. And when we think about it, religion is about doing. It's about measuring. It's always about trying to present a, a self-righteous posture, except for the, the righteous religion that James talks about, looking after widows and orphans in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's, that's true religion. But that wasn't the kind of religion that these religious leaders were, were living. It was self-deceiving. They thought they were something and that was not true. They thought they re represented God. But in fact, they were, they were just puffing up themselves. Second was fear. These religious leaders were actually pretty insecure. They, they had a fear of man. They were always fearing what someone was going to do or say about them or how they were going to posture themselves in their decision-making. But they also had a, a deep fear of losing their power, losing their position and their privilege. You know, they ran the economy of the temple, and, and this was different instances where Jesus had cleared out the money changers in the temple, and that was, their, that was their livelihood. That was their, you know, they were padding their bank accounts, and this was a threat to that. Jesus was a threat to their way of life. 
and they feared that. Thirdly, there's hard-heartedness. Jesus had previously called these religious leaders whitewashed sepulchers, tombs. You know, they clean the outside of the, of the tomb, and it just, it's just such a comical, you know, picture of something that is inside. There's decay and there's rotting, a rotting corpse graphically. But on the outside, oh, you just kind of clean that all up really nice, make it look good on the outside. That's what Jesus was saying about these religious leaders. Their polished exterior looked good, but their hearts were far from God. Instead of seeing Jesus as a savior, they saw him as a hindrance. And so if Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God, their position on their supposed throne would be pretty uncomfortable. So when you think of these things, maybe in your life, I I can't speak for you, um, but I find myself considering my role as a pastor as a form of a religious leader in this community. And so I I look at myself in the mirror on these ones, and I find myself, whether I like it or not, often stumbling into these potholes if I'm not careful or if I'm not attentive to the Spirit and His voice in my life. See, as a pastor, a religious leader, that's, that's a big part of my life. And that has unique challenges for me. But for all of us as Christians, we can easily be self-deceived, thinking that we are better than we are, thinking we are better than our neighbor, having a religious zeal for the work of the Lord and our Christian duty, but be completely void of actual desire for intimacy with Jesus and for love for our neighbor. How can that be? How can you be doing all the right things and saying all the right things and yet your heart is just distant from God? It's a trap that we can fall into. I can fear what you think of me. I can fear losing control. That's a religious pothole. See, I can hold on to all my my justifications for what I do or what I don't do fearing that I'd lose your approval or or losing influence. There's fear in my life. And I can also have a hard heart. So I can scrub the exterior so that I sound good, look good, seem like a righteous man, but listen, I'm a sinful man. I can be petty. I can be judgmental. And I can easily set aside grace for judgment. And you know, putting Jesus on the cross is sometimes a seemingly safer place for him than having him to reorder and and reform my life. And it's not actually the struggle of allowing him to clean me up, but it's the fact that he calls me to die with him. And death of of self is hard for the pious and the religious. You know, this story is important. It, it, It should stir our hearts as to the injustice of what happened to Jesus. And yet when you and I, when we place ourselves in the story, 
we need to recognize our part in it. We can blame Judas. We can blame evil men, corrupt religious leaders. We can blame the Roman governor. There's, there's lots of blame to go around in this story. But we can't deny that it was you and me that nailed Jesus to the cross because of our sin. Today I want to invite you to, to stand uh, where you're at. I'm going to pray a prayer. And, and if, if, it's, if it's just for me, <laughs> I mean, that'd be kind of self-serving, but it might echo in your heart because this is my prayer for myself today where I see these potholes, these religious trappings. And I, I, don't, want any, I don't want any part in that. And so I'll pray it. And if you want to pray it, if it seems to echo with you, you can pray it in your own heart. Lord Jesus, I confess that it was my sin that drove you to the cross. I confess areas in my life where I have zeal without love and judgment without grace. I confess there's times where I fear losing control of my life. And I fear what surrendering to you will actually cost me. And so today I ask you to soften my heart to receive what you've done for me and the forgiveness that you so willingly offer. Thank you that a new life, a new heart, a new mind is available to me through Jesus. And I receive that. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you can be seated. If those uh, on the worship team want to come up, I'll just say this. Perhaps religion and all of this is so far from you. You still need Jesus. You still need the grace of God. And so I pray that during this season, you'll, you'll recognize your part in it. You'll come before God with the softness of heart, no matter where you stand. And also, if, if you are one of those religious type of people, um, and you struggle with those, that you'd continually just bring those things before the Lord and allow him to, to soften your heart and reshape you.